foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Revolution. I am Shay with Code Pink and welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCBLP 107.9 FM. We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at www.codepink.org radio, where you will find all our episodes from episode one to our most recent. Hi, everybody. I am excited to be talking with you all this week. As I mentioned a minute ago, 
I'm Shay. I am the Divest from the War Machine organizer with Code Pink, and I'm based in Chicago, Illinois, on the homelands of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi Nations. In this show, we will hear updates from Marcy Winograd on what is happening right now in the war in Ukraine. And we will later hear with um, hear from Medea Benjamin and Hadia Afzal of Unfreeze Afghanistan on the Biden administration's recent move to create a $3.5 billion fund within a Swiss bank to benefit the Afghan economy and what it means for their work. First, we are going to hear updates on the war in Ukraine from Marcy Winograd in light of the recent news that the Russian government has called upon military reservists to escalate the war in Ukraine. Uh, Marcy, for folks who don't know you, do you want to do a quick introduction? Oh, sure. Thank you so much, Shay, for inviting me on Code Pink Radio. It's nice to be uh, in a different position. Sometimes I host, but um, I'm really excited about the interview. I am the organizer or coordinator for Code Pink Congress. Uh, We host bi-monthly Zooms the first and third Tuesday of the month, focusing on foreign policy. We try to connect the dots between foreign and domestic policy, and we invite everybody to join us. Uh, You can do so by clicking on codepink.org backslash codepinkcongress. I'm also involved in a uh, Veterans for Peace group called Militarism and the Climate Crisis Project, and uh, we're trying to build awareness about the connections between wars for oil and the climate crisis, between emissions from the U.S. Air Force, which are huge, and an exponential increase in greenhouse gas emissions each time we we launch a new war or become involved in a proxy war. Uh, Even so, without those wars, we know that we're looking at a 2023 proposed military budget that exceeds $850 billion. You know, it's, it's just, it's wild, really. It's, a, it's an insult to the people in this country that we are giving these gifts. These are gifts to Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, to the war profiteers. Well, people in this country are food insecure, 100 million are in debt, so forth and so on. So that's that's a little bit about me. Thank you so much. Um, for all the work that you do. I'm excited to be talking with you today. Um, One of the many hats that you wear is um, helping coordinate the Peace in Ukraine Coalition, which I know you do work with several different organizations and groups um, addressing all of the updates that are happening on the ground every day with the war in Ukraine. Um, So I was hoping that today we could talk about just the recent updates in the war, what has been happening and maybe what does that mean for our movements in the United States? Oh, very important questions. Thank you, Shay. The Peace in Ukraine Coalition is made up of a number of groups, most coalitions are. So we're looking at Code Pink. We initiated the coalition, but also involved. Uh, we have Veterans for Peace with chapters all over the country, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, US, Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, International Committee the Foreign Policy Team of Progressive Democrats of America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and many others. So we meet uh, twice a month. We may have to step up those meetings given the the emergency situation that we're facing. Uh, I wanted to talk about that on Code Pink Radio because I think a lot of people are, you know, living their lives, struggling uh, just to pay the rent, uh, keep a job, feed their kids, right? But in the meantime, the backdrop is that We have people in our government, in the White House, in Congress, in the media, in our academic institutions, 
pushing for war. We, we see that we are involved in a proxy war. Code Pink calls this a proxy war in Ukraine, because really, uh, when you have the president of the United States saying uh, Putin's got to go or something to the ad- that effect, or when you have the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, saying we're there to weaken Russia, we're in it to weaken Russia, that's code for regime change. And we see where that gets us, right? Uh, People were celebrating the victories, the battlefield victories in Ukraine. And certainly we condemned at Code Pink, we condemned the Russian invasion and all of the horrors that have accompanied it, the displacement of millions of people, death and destruction of infrastructure, Soviet era infrastructure. All of that is a nightmare. On top of that, however, we see that there are no winners here. For every victory, there is retaliation, right? So uh, now the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, has announced that he's going to be mobilizing 300,000 reservists to widen the war with Ukraine. Uh, And he's also issuing, again, veiled threats to use nuclear weapons, to use every weapon in their arsenal. I would like to point out, however, that President Zelensky of Ukraine, his government, uh, his senior aide has said recently that if Russia even thinks, I'm putting that in quotes, even thinks about using nuclear weapons, the U.S., uh, excuse me, Western powers should retaliate with nuclear strikes. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like it means a first strike. Perhaps he didn't mean it that way. I don't know, but it's a very dangerous situation. We are on the precipice. Uh, This, I can't remember, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there. And I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. I went to the market with my mother. We were loading up on all sorts of groceries. I don't know how we thought we would survive, you know, a nuclear war between the Soviet Union, then the Soviet Union and the United States. The Soviets had uh, nuclear missiles off of Cuba aimed at Florida. Fortunately, we did survive. We had a president then, JFK, John F. Kennedy, who reached a diplomatic agreement. He he agreed to remove missiles, nuclear missiles from Turkey, which were later reinstalled, uh, if the Soviet Union would remove those nuclear missiles from Cuba. So we survived, but here we are. And it's a it's a, an existential game of chicken where you have our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, testifying before the United Nations General Assembly saying, uh, we are gonna continue to arm and arm and arm Ukraine. And talk to a lot of people, they say, we have to arm Ukraine, we can't leave them defenseless. We have not. We have not left them defenseless. Uh, This year alone, we will probably surpass $40 billion worth of weapons shipments alone. I'm not talking about aid. We're all for aid, you know, humanitarian aid, debt relief, and so forth. But weapons, military training, intelligence to sink Russian ships, proxy war. We are bordering on a direct war with Russia. And uh, with Putin's latest announcement about the mobilization of 300,000 troops, comes the announcement that they're holding referendums in the eastern regions, four regions in the east of Ukraine. This is the industrial heartland of Ukraine. Uh, Four elections for independence. What does this mean? Well, you know, I don't have to be a a fortune teller to predict that people there will vote to align with the Russian Federation. Uh, There have been Russian separatists fighting Ukrainian right-wing white nationalists for years in Ukraine. So I don't think it's a a question mark how this vote will go. And if that occurs, then what? Then the East is part of Russia or Putin will consider it part of Russia and any attack on the East 
will be considered an attack on Russia's Russia as a sovereign nation. So, you know, it, it's a very dangerous time. And I, I do want to urge those who are listening to take action. I think when you hear about this, when you hear about how close we are to a nuclear war, the temptation is to just throw up your hands and take a walk on the beach or go to a movie, anything, because it's too frightening to even consider. However, this is now the time that we need to mobilize more than ever. This is a time of great urgency. So what what can we do? All right, here's what I would suggest. I mean, at the very least, pick up the phone, call your member of Congress and say, why haven't you issued a call for a ceasefire? Perhaps they have. I think maybe one or two have. (laughs) But odds are they have not. So ask them to make a public statement in support of a ceasefire. That means everyone puts down their arms and negotiates for a peace agreement. People will say, ah, but you cannot negotiate with Vladimir Putin. He's a madman. He's not a madman, okay? Uh, He may be brutal. He may be autocratic. He may be suppressing dissent throughout Russia. We saw over a thousand demonstrators being arrested in the streets, anti-war protesters, but he's not a madman. And in fact, it was the United States, not Russia, not Putin. It was Trump, not Putin, that walked away from two very important arms control treaties, Open Skies and the INF, to limit the number of nuclear weapons both the U.S. and Russia would possess. So let's call for a ceasefire and a negotiated peace. Call Congress, 202-224-3121. That's 202 202- Two two four three one two one. What else can you do? If you live in a city, you have a, a newspaper, call them up, call up the editorial department, ask them to publish an editorial calling for a ceasefire and tell them why. Tell them you want to see your children, your grandchildren grow up. Okay. Uh, what else can you do? You can, besides uh, sending letters to your Congress member, calling the New York Times, the Washington Post, whatever, a newspaper you can think of, you can also show up at an office of the State Department. There are State Department offices throughout this country. Deliver a letter. Say, hey, what are you doing? Uh, We don't agree with Secretary of State Blinken, who has pledged to arm Ukraine until what? That is the big question. Until what? It used to be, we heard uh, our politicians saying, we're going to fight. We want to fight until the last Ukrainian. Now, They might as well say, we want to fight until the last human being on earth, because that's where this is heading unless we put the brakes. And we have to, we have to hit the streets. We have to get out there. We have to, uh, as, as Mario Savio said during the free speech movement, put our bodies against the machine, you know, wherever that machine is, you may have, well, many of us have contractors, war profiteers in our districts, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, General Dynamics. Go there, erect a picket line, be visible, try to get some attention. It's all hands on deck right now. Perfect. And and just while we're on that note, I'm wondering if you wanted to briefly mention the really powerful Peace in Ukraine Week of Action that just took place, just so listeners can hear maybe how other folks are mobilizing locally where they are against the war. That's that's a terrific question. Thank you for uh, suggesting that I share what we, <clears throat> excuse me, what we did during our September week of action recently, we had uh, members of our coalition, Peace in Ukraine, organize events. These were letter drops to Congress, rallies on the steps of Congress members, 
visits to Capitol Hill, visits to 30 members' offices, urging you know, them to speak up for a ceasefire and to oppose more weapons for uh, to fuel, to escalate this war. So we had events such as those in San Francisco, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Milwaukee, Madison, Boston, Rockville, Santa Cruz, San Mateo, San Pedro, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, Tucson, Arizona, and others. And it was inspiring to see people out there. We need a, a mass mobilization. Uh, these were these were excellent, you know, uh, events to inspire and trigger other events. But we need to keep going. And I'm asking if you're listening and you're interested and you understand the gravity of the situation to join our coalition, you can do so. Here you go at www.peaceinukraine.org. That's www.peaceinukraine.org. Click on the link, fill out a Google form, and you can join our coalition. We also have listservs, mobilization, and discussion to continue the organizing and the thinking aloud about next steps. So I invite everybody, join us. Thank you so much, Marcy. And just to make sure everyone got it, it's www.peaceinukraine.org. Please go and check it out. And you can also see some excellent pictures of the week of action that uh, Marcy just discussed. Um, thank you so much for being here and for updating all of us. It's scary times, but it's heartening to know that there are smart folks like you who are guiding strategy for how we can best maneuver uh, just a really challenging situation. Thank you so much, Jay, for, for inviting me and for amplifying the call for ceasefire in Ukraine. Great. Thank you. You are listening to Code Pink Radio coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFK in Los Angeles, WBAI in New York City, and KPFT in Houston. We will be back after this break to hear from Medea Benjamin and Hadia Afzal.
Bruca Maningua by Ibrahim Ferrer for a moment of joy and dance amidst a heavy radio show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Shay, and I'm with Code Pink. You're listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, KPFK in Los Angeles, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. We are now joined with Medea Benjamin and Hadia Afzal. Great. Um, so welcome. I'm really excited to be talking with both of you. I'm wondering if you all would want to do um, quick intros before we get into this. Yes, my name is Medea Benjamin. I'm co-founder of Code Pink, but also one of the co-founders of Unfreeze Afghanistan. Uh, I'm Hadia Afsal. I'm program coordinator at Unfreeze Afghanistan, and I've been working in foreign policy for the last few years. Perfect. Thank you both so much. I'm really excited to be talking with you all. Um, just to start, Medea, I'm wondering if you would want to provide uh, some background on Unfreeze Afghanistan and how the group formed, when it formed, and what things have looked like since the formation. Well, it's so fascinating that Masuda Sultan and I reconnected after 20 years since we worked together when the U.S. invasion first happened to uh, try to come up with a way to highlight the, uh, the reality that Afghan civilians were being killed and that 
the U.S. had to recognize that, stop killing civilians and compensate those who were who had been killed or their, compensate their families. And Masuda has her own tragic story of relatives of hers being killed in those early uh, days of the U.S. invasion. And we came together. We knocked on the doors of Congress people and also within the Pentagon to uh, give them the direct stories we had of the Afghan civilians killed and demand this fund. And eventually the fund was created. Uh, and that's both in Congress. And then there was a fund that the military itself had. Uh, and we then parted ways for quite a while because Masuda started working with the uh, U.S. folks in Afghanistan and became part of the uh, Afghan bank, worked in finance, and I continue to be a very strong opponent of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan militarily. And so it was after the uh, became clear that the Taliban were going to be coming back in uh, that we reconnected. And as soon as they took over, uh, we started talking about the problems of getting the assets that the U.S. had frozen uh, back to the Afghan people. And our initial uh, focus was on the issue of teacher salaries. And we connected with a group, an association of teachers that represented 40,000 of them, women teachers. Uh, it, teaching is the number one employment of women in Afghanistan. And they said to us that for months they were not being paid. Uh, the government didn't have money. The bank didn't have access to the Afghan currency. And they uh, didn't know what to do. Uh, this was before the announcement that girls couldn't go to secondary schools, but um, they, the teachers were saying that some of them were continuing to go to school and uh, teach without getting paid. And so we started Unfreeze Afghanistan with another colleague, Cheryl Bernard, to um, focus on this issue of uh, how awful it was that it, upon leaving Afghanistan, and of course we criticized the way the exit was done uh, in such a chaotic uh, way, but um, we focused on this $7 billion in the United States that was being held in U.S. banks and the U.S. Federal Reserve instead of being returned to Afghanistan. So that's how we began. Uh, one of our first activities was going to one of the World Bank meetings and uh, holding a rally outside with some of our Afghan-American friends and Afghans, actually, who had just come to the United States on behalf of the teachers and saying that these teachers needed to be paid. Uh, we also were focusing on other government employees like doctors and nurses who weren't getting paid and uh, saying that these employees had no culpability in terms of the Taliban coming in and they were essential to the functioning of a normal society. And so what could we do to get that money released? 
And then we, once we created Unfreeze Afghanistan, we had the great fortune of hiring Hadia, who has been doing an amazing job. Thank you, Madhya. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Do you have more of that? Sorry, I didn't want to, I don't want to cut you off. Um, no, I wanted to just introduce Hadia to go on from there about what we've been doing. Of course. So earlier this year in March uh, 2022, uh, Medea and Masuda and some other women peace activists went to Kabul and visited Afghanistan. They were the first civil American society to visit since the takeover um, in August of 21. And while they were there, they visited schools, they talked to local leaders, they spoke to teachers and students um, and NGOs that had kept running um, since that takeover. And what they found there was devastation of the economy, for sure, accelerated by the freezing of Afghanistan's bank reserves. And a lot of on-the-ground testimony from uh, Afghan women, Afghan girls, and um, others who were talking about the effect that that freeze had had on, on them and their, and their lives. Um, Afghan people understand um, quite clearly that the money that they were convinced to put in a formalized central banking system has been withheld from them for months. As Medea just mentioned, teacher salaries were a huge one, but other civil servants have been unable to withdraw their own money for months. So we're seeing lines and lines of people who are waiting to withdraw their own funds that they put in and are being turned away time and again. So fuel, medicine, food, all these other basic necessities um, are there, but unable to be afforded by the average Afghan now. So add to this the, sorry, Madhya, go ahead. I was just going to add to your description of that trip um, that one day we were standing by um, uh, outside and a woman came up to us crying and pleading with us and saying that she was a pensioner and she lived on very, very little money and she couldn't get her pension out of the bank. And then the uh, day before we left, we went to the reopening of an Afghan uh, Women's Business Association, the women's uh, part of the Chamber of Commerce. And there we went, met women who said that it wasn't the Taliban at that time that were saying you can't have a business. It was the fact that they couldn't get their money out of the bank to pay their employees. There was one very um, upset woman entrepreneur who had make, been making clothing. And she said she had a factory that employed 200 women. And now she had about 30 because she just couldn't get the money to pay them. And then on the very, very poor scale, we did get a chance to go out uh, with some of the groups that were sending humanitarian aid to people and found devastating conditions on the outskirts of Kabul. And that's where, you know, things are supposed to be better because it's easier to get the humanitarian aid uh, around the big city. Uh, but what we found were people who uh, were absolutely desperate. Um, we heard stories of people boiling grass to eat. Uh, we heard about uh, men selling their kidneys in order to be able to get in some income to feed their families. Um, we heard many stories about people selling their children, uh, which is just horrific. And one of the stories that really stuck with me is when we 
talk to them about the problem of girls not being able to go to secondary school, which, you know, is indeed a tragedy. Girls should be able to uh, attend all levels of education. Uh, one of the women stared at me blankly and said, um, it's not an issue for us because we don't send our boys to school either because we can't afford a notebook and the pens and we have to send them out to beg to try to bring some income home. So I just wanted to uh, give some stories that reinforce what Hodge has been saying about how desperate the situation is. Thank you. Of course, um, and add to that the disappearance of the humanitarian aid economy that was propping up a lot of Afghanistan before the takeover. And we see that the, the narrative around humanitarian rights and Afghan women's rights by a lot of Western uh, agencies involved in, in this now um, fundamentally miss the main economic crisis that is the motivator for a lot of these um, as Medea mentioned, you know, Afghan women are very clear that they cannot um, run their businesses, their homes, feed their families, go to school um, if they're starving. And that is the number one issue facing Afghan women and the country as a whole. And the latest news about the Afghan fund um, goes a small way in addressing this. But of course, um, experts that we've worked with over the past year um, have many different opinions about exactly the way that plan should be rolled out. Thank you so much. Um, Medea, sorry, do you want to say something? Well, I think we should explain what Hodge is referring to there, because we mentioned that there were $7 billion that were stuck in uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve, but the Biden administration had divided that in half and said $3.5 billion would be uh, put aside as potential compensation to 9-11 families who had a court case uh, claiming they had the right to those funds. And one of the things that we have done as Unfreeze Afghanistan is do an amicus brief uh, to say uh, all the reasons that we could think of about why that is not the case and that, that those funds should not be used to um, compensate 9-11 families, yeah. uh, including the fact that there was not one hijacker who was from Afghanistan. Um, but in any case, that case is still being litigated. And uh, so the other $3.5 billion is what we have been focusing on. And there, uh, it, the recent development is that there was this Afghan fund that was created by the Biden administration in a an international bank in Switzerland, and that $3.5 billion will be posited there. And uh, then there are all these conditions that the U.S. government has put in place for uh, how that money could only be returned to the central bank if those conditions were met. And so maybe it'd be good to have Haja talk about what those conditions are. Sure. Um, so there were three conditions that they signaled the DAB had to uh, meet, which were independent monitoring mechanisms, um, the implementation of anti-money laundering and CFT controls combating financing of terrorism, and the insulation of DAB from political interference. So DAB has already agreed on independent monitoring conditions, and people have pointed out how pre-existent 
um, infrastructure for that could be restored along with the reserve return um, if the U.S. is interested in doing so. And, you know, they assert that the new Afghan government has lost expertise um, and needs to rebuild its civil capacity for maintaining the central bank and its functions. Um, that could happen easily with assistance from the international community. Um, DAB also still has the same laws in place that outlined its function as an independent um, technocratic institution. So they were charged with very basic uh, monetary policies and like, currency auctions, oversight of other commercial banks within Afghanistan. So the U.S. invested a lot over two decades into building DAB as a central bank modeled after the U.S. Federal Reserve. So the issue now is that last point on political interference and what that might mean specifically. Um, Reuters, when they wrote on this, said that that stands as diplomatic parlance for basically replacing any top Taliban appointed officials, um, some of whom are under sanctions. Um, but that in and of itself, um, and audit stringency, these monetary mechanisms, those aren't things that have been used to deny other sovereign nations their bank assets. So this is a very unique, um, politically motivated case um, that we see um, this trust as being uh, a piece in. Thank you so much. That was a really helpful explanation. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious what this recent news means to your work with Unfreeze Afghanistan for, for both of you. Um, maybe it doesn't change anything in your work or does, does it have bearing on what your strategy uh, looks like moving forward? Well, first, I just wanted to also explain that uh, it's uh, so much of this is all political. It's that Biden doesn't want to be seen as having given money to the Taliban, especially with an election coming up. And so transferring it over to Switzerland makes it easier for this process to move forward. Um, now, they still put in all these conditions that Hadi had talked about, but from the U.S., from the Biden administration point of view, it was like, okay, let's get rid of some of this money uh, and leave it in other hands to deal with. Um, so that's why we say it's a step forward. Uh, we were also worried that the uh, money that is now in that international bank in Switzerland could have been used for things like humanitarian aid, which we were against. We think that should be separate money, and this money should be going for um, uh, upholding the currency as a central bank does. Uh, we were also concerned when we heard that it was possibly going to be used to pay off some of Afghanistan's debt. Um, and then we were reassured by the U.S. envoy, Tom West, uh, that that would only be a very minor amount of money, like two or three million dollars that would allow Afghanistan to be eligible for loans. Uh, but it's um, uh, the, the Taliban have rejected this. They have said that money shouldn't go into this. Afghan trust, that money should have been delivered directly to our central bank. Uh, they put, they said that they would fine uh, transactions that were coming in through that means. Uh, and so we don't know right now um, what 
the next moves by the Taliban are, whether they were uh, indeed um, very upset with this. Uh, but given that they had been having ongoing talks with the U.S. government, um, they, it, it couldn't have really come to, by surprise to them. So we're wondering if this is a political move that they feel they have to make, but behind the scenes, they're actually working uh, with the U.S. government and the international community to fulfill those um, obligations and get the money back. But Haji, I think maybe you can talk more about how that changes our strategy. Mm -hmm. So our focus right now is on urgency. Um, every month that a reserve return is delayed is another month in which Afghans are relying on um, meager aid donations and sustenance to keep them going. Uh, Human Rights Watch has warned that last winter was predicted to be devastating for Afghanistan. Like, High rock, uh, skyrocketing poverty, um, food prices, food in, uh, inst instability as well. And so they were only able to avert um, that through emergency surge funding. Um, the UN Global Aid Fund now has still fallen billions short. And unless um, Afghanistan's reserves are returned for to get the economy back on its feet independently, um, that aid can't keep going as far as it once did, especially in a year marked by global war and pandemic and rising inflation as well. So our focus on making sure this trust um, sets out a plan soon and fast and that it works for the people of Afghanistan and that all 7 billion plus um, eventually goes back in full to the central bank, not through a different mechanism, not through anything that could undermine um, the institution of the central bank um, that has taken so many decades to build up. Yeah, I, I also want to say, Shay, that we have not forgotten the uh, restrictions that the Taliban have been putting on women. And we think it's important while we do this work to get money back to the central bank to try to revitalize the economy, uh, that um, we should also be pushing the Taliban on these issues because we did uh, establish a relationship with some of them when we went there. And um, we had people on our delegation who were experts in uh, Islamic law and how it relates to women and women's education. And so we are continuing on that path as well to be critical of the uh, terrible moves to restrict women's access to education past the sixth grade, uh, to restrict women's movement, saying that after uh, going a certain distance away from your home, you're not allowed to travel without a male guardian. Uh, and there have been many uh, venues in Afghanistan where women have lost their jobs, and it, it, that includes some of the government institutions. And we also are very aware that there are major divisions among the Taliban. We met with uh, Taliban leaders in the Ministry of Education who couldn't wait to get the girls back to school, who said, when we're given the okay, we will be there immediately to start that up again. And we met Taliban at uh, lots of different kind of uh, uh, venues who said to us, look, our daughters um, are of uh, uh, 
age to go to school and we want them to be able to go to secondary school. We want them to be able to go to college. Uh, and there are a lot of younger Taliban who have uh, seen women already in these kinds of positions and uh, have uh, more liberal attitudes. There are Taliban who had been living in Qatar uh, during their years in exile, who had seen women participating in different aspects of society. And so we think it's important to recognize those divisions and to try to uh, give support to those who are more moderate in their views and to isolate more those who uh, are um, in the minority, we feel, but they are the ones, unfortunately, calling the shots. Thank you so much. That's really useful. I, I guess you all mentioned this at the top of the call, but I'm wondering what the role of sanctions um, is among all of this and how that shapes the context. If, yeah, you want to speak on that? So uh, I can just start by saying that sanctions have, have had an absolutely devastating impact on Afghanistan. And the humanitarian crisis that came from that has disproportionately affected the average Afghan. Um, the Center for Economic and Policy Research's Mark Wisebro has singled out financial sanctions on Afghanistan as amounting to, quote unquote, collective punishment on the Afghan people for a government they did not choose. Um, Jamila Afghani, an Afghan woman, um, she's the founder and president of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. She said, we are not supporting Afghan women by starving them. So a lot of the, the, the news that you'll see out of Afghanistan, they're driven by socioeconomic factors that affect cultural practices. And those are only expected to increase with the humanitarian crisis. Meanwhile, Islamic scholars like Medea mentioned have highlighted Quranic evidence supporting women's rights, their independence, their education, their liberation. So all of this um, is best fostered in a stable economic environment with sustained international diplomacy and interfaith dialogue. And exacerbating this um, through punishing sanctions is, on, is undermining any kind of progress that they're hoping to make. And only real change will happen through constructive dialogue, making sure people are stable, comfortable, uh, and able to pursue um, their own their own true futures, um, free from outside outside interference. Thank you so much, Hadia. That's really helpful. Um, I guess as we near the end of our discussion, is there anything else that you all want to add to kind of discuss? the current landscape or your work moving forward or, or ways listeners can support? Well, one of the things I wanted to bring up because the U.S. government officials are always highlighting it and they're saying we are the biggest donor to humanitarian aid for Afghanistan. They're constantly saying that and it's true, uh, but the donations are so meager in comparison to the needs. Uh, there's $2 billion that's still um, uh, the gap in what the UN had called for and what they have gotten in pledges from around the world. And when you think that it was Biden himself who said that the US had been spending $250 million every single day during the war in Afghanistan for 20 years, uh, and how now we're bragging so much when we give two days worth of humanitarian aid, uh, I think there is a lot more that the U.S. can do. And Afghans who felt that they were being 
um, going to be greeted in the United States as friends and allies because they had been working with the U.S. government for 20 years, have now find themselves uh, stuck in foreign countries without getting their visas to come to the United States. And uh, many of them are looking at the Ukrainians and the way they are being treated as refugees who are being welcomed with open arms all over the world um, and saying, you know, why is not that not the case with us in Afghanistan? We don't think that the, the solution to the problem in Afghanistan is millions of people leaving, especially since there already is a tremendous brain drain and Afghanistan is going to need those people to rebuild itself. Um, but we do feel that the United States owes more financially to Afghanistan, owes more visas to the Afghan people who had uh, who who had worked with the U.S. for 20 years, and that um, that just leaving militarily and trying to wash our hands of them uh, is not the answer. Once we get this money released, and we hope it's not just the 3.5 billion, that it'll be the whole 7 billion, uh, Afghanistan will remain a very poor country, extremely poor country. And so we have to not only be pushing that the US give more humanitarian aid, but the development assistance be unleashed. There's monies that the World Bank has that are supposed to go for Afghan development that have not been released. There's money that the IMF has in special drawing rights, $450 million worth for Afghanistan that hasn't been released. And so we think that there has to be just an all out effort to help the Afghan people get back uh, up on their feet uh, while we continue to do the work to push the Taliban to be a more inclusive government, not only inclusive of women's rights, but inclusive of the minorities who are right now not represented by the Af by the Taliban government. Agreed with Medea. Great points. Focus is on not just the reserve return, which is the first ultimate step. Uh, but continuing to invest in long-term development so Afghanistan can be a country on its own. And people can go to Unfreeze Afghanistan to learn more and see what our latest actions are. And we also are doing a lot of this work as part of Code Pink as well. So there's a nice partnership there. Great. Thank you both so much, Midi and Hadia, for sharing your expertise with all of us and um, talking us through the work of Unfreeze Afghanistan, current developments, and the next steps forward. Um, and that is unfreezeafghanistan.org for people to follow your work. Um, yeah, thank you both so much.
couples our phones and the places we meet They curtail our speech, our movement, our rights But we won't give up Without a fight With the wave of the flag our liberty shrink They say cold fear We say cold pain With the wave of the flag our liberty shrink They say cold fear We say cold pain Cold pain For freedom Cold pain For peace Cold pain To hunger Code pink.